Job chapter 4 and verse 1. Then Eliphaz the Temanite answered and said, If we essay to commune with thee, wilt thou be grieved? But who can withhold himself from speaking? Eliphaz desires to speak with Job. Assay, if we assay to commune with thee, if we try to speak, wilt thou, Job, be grieved? But who can withhold himself from speaking? Now, Eliphaz here appears to be the senior man amongst Job's three friends. He is their chief spokesman. Remember, Job has been going through a long period of desperate grief and mourning on his own, away from everybody else, deeply grieving. He's been sitting in silence And his three friends have been there not knowing what to say initially. Now this man Eliphaz has so much influence it seems over the other two friends. Because they tend to follow in his path in terms of the advice given to Job. Now, from what subsequently transpires in this book, we know that Eliphaz is sadly a somewhat self-righteous religious person. We also know that he is Satan's instrument to discredit and destroy Job's faith. And yet, at the same time, Eliphaz knows much of God's truth. Yet, he is still acting in great error here. Now, that in itself is a salutary lesson. Eliphaz knows much of God's truth, yet still acts in great error. He knows that Job will not like what he is about to say. Wilt thou be grieved? But nevertheless he feels compelled to speak. So he says in verse 3, Behold thou hast instructed many, and thou hast strengthened the weak hands. Thy words have upholden him that was falling, and thou hast strengthened the feeble knees. Now here, We learn some more about Job's character and integrity. Here we see that he has been a man to whom others have sought for counsel and advice. He was a town elder whose counsel was received, esteemed and acted upon. He was known for his spiritual wisdom. And so we are considering 
in Job's great distress. A satanic attack upon a mature believer. Indeed, a spiritual teacher of others. One who has already accomplished great things for God. And so here we see a mature believer who is laid low by Satan. Here we see a spiritual teacher who is under severe satanic assault. And so we need to understand that to teach the scriptures exposes a man to satanic assault. Behold, thou hast instructed many. And so that's the status of Job, a mature believer, yet now brought to this wretched condition where he cannot understand what God is doing. This is what Eliphaz says to him in verse 5. But now it is come upon thee, and thou faintest. It toucheth thee, and thou art troubled. Eliphaz here accuses Job of not practising what he has preached to others. Others have encountered great difficulties in their lives, They've gone to Job and Job has given them advice. But now when Job is in great trouble himself, he's not practising the advice he gave to those others who came to him. So says Eliphaz. Now notice here that Job is minimising, that Eliphaz is minimising Job's sufferings as being what many people go through. That is somewhat cruel when we consider the fact that Job's seven sons and three daughters have all been simultaneously killed by a hurricane causing a house to collapse on top of them. Not only that, Job's own personal, material and economic resources have been devastated. Not only that, Job's own body right now is wracked by a painful and utterly debilitating illness. We all need to stop and consider how we would react to such a mountain of tragedies as Job is currently enduring. Eliphaz says in verse 6 here, Is not this thy fear, thy confidence, thy hope, and the uprightness of thy words? Now, the word fear here means one's fear of God, one's devotion to God. Eliphaz is asking Job, does not your devotion to God consist in these three 
aspects, namely thy confidence, thy hope, and thine uprightness of life. That is what your fear of God consists of. Job should be confident and hopeful because he is leading an upright life. But he is obviously not confident and hopeful. Therefore, says Eliphaz, the problem must lie in his failure to be upright, his failure to be holy. That must be the source of the problem. There is certainly a suggestion here that Eliphaz believes that a man's salvation is earned by his good works. Eliphaz, of course, understands man's need for God's mercy. But he does appear rather too confident in his own current level of virtue and obedience. Remember the sort of man that Job is and his reputation. He is an upright, honest man to whom others went for advice. And yet Eliphaz now says without any hesitation, it appears you are in this state because you're a sinner. So we are dealing here in Eliphaz with a seriously religious person who understands much truth about God but who is nevertheless proud in his heart about his own ability to do what God wants. He wrongly insinuates to Job that his trials must be the result of wickedness in his life. But Job's clear conscience before God has been the one thing sustaining him. We know from the very first verse of this book that Job genuinely fears God and pursues all holiness. Nevertheless, Eliphaz continues in his assault upon Job's personal integrity. Imagine that. You've just lost all your children. Your body's wracked with disease. You've lost all your wealth. And you're accused of lacking personal integrity. Verse 7. Remember, I pray thee, who ever perished of being innocent? Or where were the righteous cut off? Now, that verse 7 is actually false doctrine. But it is obscured, the falsehood is obscured, because there is an aspect of truth in it. It is true that the wicked may be struck down with earthly judgments and even death. 
as the direct punishment of God. We must never deny that. It is true. God can take out a wicked man whenever he wishes. We cannot deny that. So then, it is true that the wicked may suffer the direct hand of God's rebuke in this life. But it is also true that the righteous may suffer for the testing of their faith and to discipline them for greater holiness. Believers may even be prematurely cut off from life. Perhaps as a result of persecution or for other reasons which are known only to God. Believers can die young through illness. Whatever God ordains is for the ultimate good of his people. So if a believer dies what might look like a premature death, that of course is his, for his ultimate good because he immediately goes to be in the presence of the Lord. So Christian believers may suffer affliction which is not the direct result of their own sin. But there will always be a gracious divine purpose in the affliction. Psalm 34 verse 19. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivereth him out of them all. Many are the afflictions of the righteous. So there is a plain statement in Psalm 34 that the righteous will not be exempted from earthly trials. But that in the midst of them, they continue in the sphere of God's protection. And that there will be an ultimate deliverance. Perhaps in this life and certainly in that which is to come. In a fallen world, all men die. Whether they be believers or non-believers. Eliphaz's argument in verse 7 that only the wicked suffer and die in the prime of life is simply not true. Unless there is obvious and blatant wickedness, no man has the discernment to know whether grave illness at the age of, say, 25 or 50 is God's direct punishment. As we have said, faithful Christians can be taken from this earth at a relatively young age. It is not within man's prerogative to say why another suffers or even dies unless there is plain and indisputable evidence of open wickedness being directly linked 
to the death. Eliphaz here is claiming to know God's mind in his providential dealings. And that is arrogance. Now, it is certainly true that God's word promises long life to those who are holy. That's definitely there in the scriptures. That is a general principle of God's working. Long life to the holy. But it is not an absolute rule by which God is always bound. He may at times choose to take a righteous servant to himself at a relatively young age. And that, of course, is to the infinite advantage of the righteous servant. Eliphaz continues in verse 8. Even as I have seen, they that plough iniquity and sow wickedness reap the same. Eliphaz asserts that human observation, even as I have seen, confirms what he is saying. Again, we see the deceptive nature of Eliphaz's teaching. Because there is truth in it. It is true that if men sow sin, they reap the whirlwind of God's anger. That is true. It is true that sin always catches up with men and may even do so in this life. That is true. As we have stated, it is a theologically correct fact that God is able to administer earthly judgments in time upon the wicked. But Satan, who is behind Eliphaz's approach here, is using elements of truth in order to try and deceive and undermine Job's faith. That is how subtle Satan is. He can take God's truth and warp it to further his own ends. In contrast to what Eliphaz is claiming, it is often the case that the wicked prosper in this life, certainly for a while, whilst at the same time the righteous suffer. And scripture has many examples of that, of course. Wicked prospering and the righteous suffering. You would not know that, would you, from what Eliphaz says in verse 8. The righteous Abel suffered at the hands of his wicked brother Cain. The righteous Joseph suffered at the hands of his brothers. And that led to a long period of earthly hardship for Joseph. 
the righteous David suffered at the hands of King Saul, even though he was Saul's faithful servant. The righteous apostle Paul suffered much affliction and persecution whilst faithfully serving the Lord, preaching the gospel. And so we see that Eliphaz's statement in verse 8 lacks true depth. There is no humility in his heart. No awareness of his own frailty apart from God's grace. No self-examination as to how he himself would bear up under trials such as Job was enduring. They that plough iniquity and sow wickedness reap the same. Surely there should be a little more humility in the way Eliphaz speaks to his suffering friend. Eliphaz is a Pharisee before their time. He has a dangerous confidence in his own virtue. He is Satan's instrument to undermine Job's faith. Satan, knowing that Eliphaz was Job's respected friend and counsellor, may have decided that this was the best way to cause Job to renounce the Lord. The devil has deceived Job's friends into trying to press him beyond the limits of even his great faith. Furthermore, the friends are doing this work of Satan while thinking they are speaking for God. You know, those who put the Lord to death thought they were serving God. It's often the case that those who persecute Christians think that they are serving God. And let us never forget that false teaching can often have an air of truth about it. And that's why we have to be so discerning. Satan is well able to make himself appear as an angel of light. How discerning Christians must be. What Eliphaz says here in verse 8 contains real truth. God does require justice upon all sin. But he is totally mistaken in applying this principle to Job. Not all sufferings or calamities are the consequence of one's own sins, as Eliphaz assumes. 
And he continues his assault in verse 9. Casting Job in with the general mass of wicked mankind. So here is Job, this honourable figure who, who stood out from the rest by his holiness of life. But Eliphaz lumps him in with the common criminal. Verse 9, by the blast of God they perish, and by the breath of his nostrils are they consumed. Now the metaphor here may well be that of the scorching east wind which destroyed the crops. By the blast of God, by the breath of his nostrils. Now, could not this be incredibly insensitive to use such a metaphor? Given that all Job's children have recently been killed because a great wind caused a house to collapse on top of them. But here comes Eliphaz. By the blast of God they perish. Now the term breath of his nostrils speaks of the anger of God upon sin. Now again we assert unequivocally God is angry with the wicked every day. They will inevitably perish. But that is not the sum of all truth. It is also the case that God's people in this fallen world do suffer. And they do so precisely because they, like all others, are living in a fallen world. We are not living in paradise. We are living in a fallen world. We do all that we can to alleviate the difficulties of living in a fallen world. But we can't remove the fact that the world is fallen. Christians suffer illness, for example. Now we do all that we can to mitigate illness. But in a fallen world, illness cannot be eradicated. Eliphaz is ignoring another aspect of God's character. That he is long-suffering and not willing that any should perish. Now you would not know that from what Eliphaz says here. Eliphaz rightly knows that all men are sinful in God's sight. You know, his theology in many respects is good. He states as much in chapter 15 of this book. Yet the tone of his address to Job here is distinctly not, we are both hopeless sinners saved by grace. And that should have been the spirit in which he spoke to his friend. Hello, Joe. I see all that you're going through. We're both sinners living in a fallen world. Eliphaz 
lacks gentleness. He is too confident in his own righteousness. He says in verse 10, the roaring of the lion and the voice of the fierce lion and the teeth of the young lions are broken. The old lion perisheth for lack of prey and the stout lion's whelps are scattered abroad. Now, wicked men, says Eliphaz, who oppress others, are likened to lions. They seem invincible for a while, but justice will catch up with them. That that is Eliphaz's message. Therefore, how can Job expect to escape the consequences of his sins? So what is Eliphaz doing here? He is likening Job to a rampaging lion. There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job, and that man was perfect and upright and one that feared God and eschewed evil. And yet Eliphaz likens Job to a rampaging lion. He was in reality a godly and humble man to whom many went for counsel. Satan is behind this assault upon Job, tempting him to think that sins which he had committed long ago and which long since had been forgiven are still bringing down God's wrath upon him. Verses 12 and 13, Eliphaz continues. Now a thing was secretly brought to me, and mine ear received a little thereof. In thoughts from the visions of the night, when deep sleep falleth on men. Eliphaz now relates how he has recently received a communication from an angel. During the night, when he is in a deep sleep, he is speaking of a visitation to him of a spirit being. And he says that what the spirit told him is directly applicable to Job's situation. Eliphaz makes this nighttime experience with the spirit the ground upon which he rests all that he subsequently says to Job. Now we need to remember that the counsel which Eliphaz gives to Job is actually directly condemned by God at the end of this book in chapter 42. God condemns Eliphaz for what he said to Job. So is this spirit speaking to Eliphaz here from God? It cannot be. This mysterious spirit 
was most definitely not God's Holy Spirit speaking words of divine inspiration. But we see here how Eliphaz sets great store upon his mystical experience. And that's a a real danger, even amongst professing Christians. Verse 14, fear came upon me and trembling, which made all my bones to shake. Eliphaz says that when the spirit or an angel appeared to him, he experienced fear and trembling. But this was not due to the holiness of God. It was due to the presence of great evil, but Eliphaz has not recognised that. Verse 15, he says, Then a spirit passed before my face. The hair of my flesh stood up. It stood still, but I could not discern the form thereof. An image was before mine eyes. There was silence. And I heard a voice. And so Eliphaz paints a very dramatic picture of this visitation to him by the Spirit. However, the terminology which he employs does not suggest the glory of a heavenly messenger come directly from the throne of God. This was rather a high-ranking demon set upon the urgent task through Eliphaz of trying to discredit God's true servant, Job. The evil spirit says to Eliphaz, verse 17, Shall mortal man be more just than God? Shall a man be more pure than his maker. Now the answer to those questions is, of course not. God is all holy. Man is fallen and has a corrupted heart. In relation to God, man is never just. And so verse 17 is truth. But how is Eliphaz using the truth? He is using it to discredit Job. To accuse Job of saying that he is more righteous than God. By claiming that he has not sinned for his suffering, Job is saying that God is wrong, that God is wrong to punish him. That's Eliphaz's argument, that Job is setting himself up above God for saying that his suffering cannot be related to his sins. Now, Eliphaz claims that these words of verse 17 are a special revelation to him. However, the fact of God's 
perfect righteousness in relation to man is basic common knowledge. It was not necessary for an angel to visit Eliphaz to declare the truth of verse 17. That's basic theology. God is more righteous than man. It's central to all God's revelation ever since Adam first fell. There was no need for a dramatic angelic visitation to declare such fundamental accepted truth. These are rather the words of an evil spirit sent by Satan, abusing a fundamental truth for his own ends, to make Job doubt God's goodness to him. Verse 18, Behold, he put no trust in his servants, and his angels he charged with folly. By his servants, none but the angels are intended. The chief thought is that God is the absolute just one and infinitely exalted above angels. Eliphaz also refers here to the rebellion of some of the angels against God. We know that Satan and the evil spirits are fallen angels. So Eliphaz refers to this, but it's ironic given that he himself right now is under the influence of an evil spirit. Eliphaz says in verse 19, How much less in them that dwell in houses of clay, whose foundation is in the dust, which are crushed before the moth. Since angels, who are spirit beings, are unable to glory in their status before the holy God, how much less can men with mere bodies of frail flesh do so? So Eliphaz speaks in verse 19 of the fragility of human existence. As weak and susceptible as a garment is to the ravages of a moth. Now again, that is sound teaching. But it is being wrongly applied to Job. You see, it's possible for Christians to hold precious truth, but then use it in a wrong manner. Verse 20. They are destroyed from morning to evening. They perish forever without any regarding it. So Eliphaz's message goes on. There is not a moment wherein man is not sinking and drawing on towards death and corruption. Men are constantly dying so that people never remark upon it as being unusual. The puny life of man is in the hands of the Almighty. Well, this is all true. This is basic truth. But it is being used here 
by a self-righteous man of a Pharisaic spirit to make Job think that he is under the wrath of God. Eliphaz is speaking in order to crush Job's spirit and make him confess to sin which he has not committed. Verse 21. Doth not their excellency which is in them go away? They die even without wisdom. Again, Eliphaz speaks about the human condition. Whatever made men prosperous and do well in this life dies with them. Even after a long life, their human wisdom is nothing compared to the wisdom of God. Again, true teaching. But completely unhelpful and inappropriate from someone who is meant to be providing spiritual comfort to his afflicted friend. Eliphaz speaks with a confidence whereby he is obviously not applying his words to himself as well. And that's important. Whenever we try and help others spiritually, that we always apply the same principles to ourselves. Eliphaz has no sense of his own utter frailty and sinfulness before God. There is no reference also in what he says to God's mercy and grace. To the fact that feeble men, including himself, enjoy fellowship with God purely upon the basis of mercy. Not upon the basis of meritorious good works. How wrong it is of Eliphaz to liken the godly Job to a worldly man dying without true wisdom. Self-righteous religious people who think that they can justify themselves through their own goodness always set their standards much lower than God does. They make their standards their own man-made notions which often tend to be a mere conformity to what society finds acceptable, not what God has commanded. Furthermore, God looks at the heart and motivation of every man. But the Pharisees' religion, to which the faith of Eliphaz seems very similar, is all about external, man-pleasing observance. Eliphaz shows us how a religious person can possess much truth yet can hold that truth with an uncaring and uncompassionate view of others, whom they deem not to be holding that truth. Their own knowledge of God's word actually creates in them a sense of pride and a failure to recognise that there may be others who are just as devoted to the Lord as they are, or even more so, but perhaps in different and not such obvious ways. <clears throat> and so Eliphaz is lacking here that spirit-wrought virtue of which Paul speaks in Philippians chapter 2 and verse 3. Philippians 2 verse 3. 
<coughs> Excuse me. Let nothing be done through strife or vainglory, but in lowliness of mind let each esteem other better than themselves. That is what we are called to do. Even though we possess more truth than others, we still have to regard others as better than ourselves, especially our fellow believers, of course. Now, the true believer loves the truth and fights for the truth. But that does not mean that the believer has the right to abandon a gentleness of spirit or cease to be lowly in his own estimation. We must not allow the possession of truth to make us proud. Galatians 6, verse 1. Brethren, if a man be overtaken in a fault, ye which are spiritual, restore such an one in the spirit of meekness, considering thyself, lest thou also be tempted. Bear ye one another's burdens, and so fulfil the law of Christ. Now that is exactly what Eliphaz had failed to do. He had not spoken to Job in a spirit of meekness. His failure provides a real warning against proud, self-righteous religiousness in which there is no humility of heart. Eliphaz knows much truth. He knows about the innate corruption of the heart. But he does not seem to acknowledge that he himself still has to deal with the problem of the flesh, lusting against the spirit within the believer's heart. Eliphaz demonstrates to us how someone can hold much truth concerning God's word and yet still be in major error in some areas. Again, a more humble spirit is needed in Eliphaz to cause him to see that his doctrine is not perfect. He needs to learn that the providence of God in respect of an individual's suffering is not as straightforward as he thinks. Eliphaz has been described as a theologian chilled by his creed. There is no clear word of sympathy in all his statements. Although we as Christian believers today possess absolute truth. We must never abandon a gentleness of spirit and a deep humility of heart so that we are then better equipped to help those who are afflicted and who, unbeknown to us, may be viciously assailed by Satan himself. Our Lord warned in Mark 8:15, take heed, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees. So we must be on our guard. We have been blessed with the possession of God's truth. 
But we must not allow that to morph into pride. Knowing the truth is no excuse for a harsh and an ungentle spirit. So may the Lord keep us humble so that we can then better help our Christian brother who is in need. Amen.